Good morning, everybody. How's everybody feeling today? Yeah, but just a second. Don't don't get it from me just yet. So, I want to acknowledge some some people. Um, uh, so, most of you know, I grew up with three sisters, older sisters. Yes, that deserves a round of applause just for surviving that. But I had, uh, I could say three siblings, but I had a lot of sisters because they always brought their friends around. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard people say if you can count on one hand the number of good friends that you have, you're a very wealthy person. Uh, and I think there's something to be said for longevity and lifelong friendships. Um, and I have to be honest, when I look at lifelong, lifelong friendships, I don't have too many. Justin's about as close as it gets back there uh, for me. Um, but I have to acknowledge Susie and Darla and Jerry and my sister Lori because they knew me since I was like five years old, three years old. I don't know, Jerry probably knew me when I was born. Um, but they have been lifelong friends and good friends and devoted friends, and uh, been super supportive uh, in very difficult seasons and difficult times uh, in my life and with my family. So I just want to honor all of you and bless you and thank you so much for who you are in my life. And I just think it's amazing. I think you are very wealthy and blessed. So I just want to take a minute and honor you. So, yeah, give them a hand. I, that's... It's a good thing. All right, let's stand up and just stretch a little bit. Get the blood flowing a little bit. If you don't mind, take both hands and place them over your heart. Close your eyes. And I want you to just imagine a radiant light of the divine, of God and of Christ, shining inside of you and building around you and building sort of a sanctuary, if you will, in this place. And then I'm going to ask you to just affirm to yourself, you can do it quietly or you can repeat after me or whatever, but just affirm to yourself, today I open my heart and I ask the Lord for revelation, for light, for love, and for healing. In Jesus' name, amen. And with that, you can be seated. So we're going to look at a story. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because since I've been through this whole, what the buzzword now is deconstruction, this sort of deconstruction process with my belief system. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things that people misunderstand about me is they think that I've just thrown the Bible away because I point out that it has issues, but hopefully we don't throw people away if they have issues. <laughs> hopefully we can look past those issues and find the good in them, right? Yes? Yes, ladies? You can't have 
Well, I'm talking to them, like, because you can't have, like, how many years of friendship? You can't have 45 years of friendship if you don't have the ability, sorry, to look past some of the trash and find the treasure. I mean, but that's true of all of us, right? And so I've had a complicated relationship with the Bible <laughs> uh, at times, but I still it, it, find tremendous, tremendous value, and I, and I can't find anything else that really can speak to the heart and awaken revelation like the Holy Scriptures. So that being said... Um, you know, when, when we read and we spend time in stories, some of you know, there was a couple of years ago, I spent a ton of time looking at the story, thank you very much, looking at the story of Cain and Abel. And of all the Bible stories that you would think, a person <laughs> would not spend a lot of time with, it's probably that story. But I probably read it in every translation I could find. And I read it and meditated on it every day for several months. And it opened up for me and was very transformative for me, really transformative in shifting my views and my beliefs. Now, if you take something as just literally and historically true, then the only benefit you gain is knowing something that was. Maybe you can learn from it, right? Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, so maybe you can learn from it. But when we're talking about these archaic stories that don't resemble our culture in any way, shape, or form, we can end up misapplying. We can think something that applied in that culture is just as valid as the culture that we're living in today when you're comparing not even apples and oranges, you're comparing apples and baseballs because they're so different. Right. So when we look at the creation story, I'm going to walk you through something, but I have to lay this foundation first. When we look at the creation story, I don't think there's much value in looking at it from a literal or historical perspective. I think it just causes problems that we don't need to have. Because first of all, whoever wrote this, and we don't know who wrote it, we're certain it wasn't Moses, even though that's where fundamentalists attribute it to. But whoever wrote it certainly was not trying to answer modern questions of physics or origins in the sense of uh, any kind of a scientific. They didn't even have scientific categories. They weren't even thinking in that way. So for us to take, this is an example of comparing apples and baseballs, for us to take the first chapter of Genesis and insist that God created the world in seven 24-hour days and in this order is absolutely ludicrous because we are answering a question that's not even on the radar of the ancient people. Like they weren't trying to answer scientific questions. They weren't even really trying to answer so much the questions of origin. And if you were able to read the first chapter of Genesis in Hebrew, you would understand that it is a poem. So we're seeing a progression. Now, you come to the story of Adam and Eve, and here's the problem with religion. Religion will poison you <laughs> and then give you the homeopathic remedy. <laughs> you know what? You know what? You know how homeopathic remedies work? You take just you take the same poison to make you better. Right? 
In other words, they'll lie to you and tell you there are things wrong with you and that you need them and, and create this perception of need in your mind, which is the poison, which makes you hate yourself, makes you feel like you're in need and lack and want and shamed and, oh, I need you. And then they'll offer you the same poison to make you better. And then you just, well, anyway. <laughs> you, you get it, right? Why, why did I get off on that? <laughs> so if I were to say that I believe... Okay, okay, now I know what I was saying. So, Western Christianity hinges on the story of Adam and Eve being literally historically true. Because it's the only way they can explain the fact that you need to be baptized as a baby or that you need to be saved or whatever because you were born in sin. You were born in sin and you can't do anything to save yourself. You can't do anything of real value. So therefore you need the cross, you need Jesus, you need, and it's lined up with all these literal historical events. That's the foundation of it. So if you take away Adam and Eve as historical people, then that causes a real problem for the church. <laughs> because the whole superstructure begins to collapse upon itself. Does that make sense to you? But what happens if we reframe it? And this is what I've done. What happens if we reframe it and realize that every ancient culture had their own myths? Myths. M-Y-T-H-S. What's a myth? It's a story that would be told from generation to generation that was to impart value and meaning to the person in their life right now. Or you could look at it this way. What if we look at these stories and we understand that it is a gathering of symbols and symbols always have meaning. They always point to something that's greater than itself, right? But it's a gathering of symbols or a gathering of meaning that is so powerful that it can transcend culture. It can transcend time. It can transcend all the things that make us different as human beings and can speak right to the core of our human experience and existence because here's the thing. Symbols can be interpreted and looked at and meaning can be found inside of symbols in any number of ways. That means when you look at a story, it can speak to you based on where you are in your life right now. And I kind of think that's what the Apostle Paul meant when he was writing. And he said uh, that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and instruction so that we can be fully equipped. I kind of think what he's talking about is that it has the ability to be living and active and take on any myriads of meaning that can speak to us in a moment of time when the inspiration comes to us. Because in the Greek, it can mean one of two things. In the Greek, it's used, it's used both ways. It's used say, of the inspiration of a poet or the inspiration of a songwriter who comes out with something really beautiful and they say that was inspired, or if you hear a song and it quickens you, it makes something jump inside of you, it it, it releases something inside of you, or it what it inspires you. And, and so the Greek has both those meanings. And so what I believe Paul's saying is that anything that we read that is sacred including the scriptures, but not limited to just the 66 books of the Bible, that comes alive to us and inspires us, then has the touch of the divine on it, and it's something that we need to pay attention to. And I think that's why several places in the scripture it says, if you have ears to hear, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now I'm saying all this because I want to take a different spin on 
<laughs> the book of Genesis. And I want to invite you to look at the story of Cain and Abel a little bit differently. And it's going to require you to let go of some of your prejudices and definitely going to require you to let go of your judgments. Because I want to look at the profitableness of Cain. I want to turn it on its head this morning a little bit and take the bad guy and say, what was really going on here and what can we learn? If we look at it from a symbolic perspective. Now you have to understand, in order to get here, you have to understand the flow. We begin in Genesis chapter 1 with, in the beginning, God. So the point is not that God created the world in seven 24-hour days. The point is that there is a source beyond creation that is the author of creation, that is our creator, that there is something beyond. So it's inviting us to look outside. It's inviting us to look at life from a metaphysical perspective and from the perspective of something that can give our lives such rich meaning to know that we have a creator and we have someone that's intimately involved in our life, that this four-dimensional world and this life isn't it, that we're not atheists and we just you know are going to go to warm food and whatever else. Got it? And the second thing you find is that there's chaos. That there's darkness, there's chaos, and the word for the deep there is Tehom, and Tehom was the seven-headed monster of chaos in the ancient world. It represents the chaotic forces of darkness, all the problems and situations that are beyond our control as human beings. And so when God comes in and he gives form and he fills the earth because the earth was without form and void. When he comes in and he, 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 he puts the stars in the sky and he tells the water where it can stop and all of this, what, what it's speaking to us is that God as the creator not only creates us, which gives us meaning, which gives us the ability to look beyond this three-dimensional world and beyond ourselves, but it also means that God can make order out of our chaos, that even though we're in this chaotic life and we have all these forces, that there is a divine power and source that can bring, that can bring fruitfulness and abundance and order and peace into our lives regardless of whatever forces may come against us. See how you can begin to draw meaning from it that speaks to you today. Then we have the story of Adam and Eve. And what if Adam and Eve are not real (laughs) flesh and blood, (laughs) the original caveman and cavewoman or whatever? What What if that whole story is about archetypes? And what if I told you that if you put it back in its ancient setting, and particularly the time when we know the Bible was at least assembled (laughs) under um, pretty much the reigns of King Josiah and King Hezekiah, humanity had been around for a long time. But you have to understand the symbology that's being used in the ancient world. Remember, ancient people in the beginning were nature worshippers. Right? And they viewed nature from the perspective of the goddess. So please understand, when you look at especially ancient indigenous cultures, they weren't as patriarchal as our cultures today, and their god was not just a male figure. They, they were very matriarchal because they understood that there was that nature was the womb out of which everything came and out of which everything was sustained. They understood that in order for life to be sustained, something had to come up from the ground, something had to fall from the sky, that that the earth was the constant giver and nurturer and mother. And so you have these nature religions, right? 
you also have to understand the symbolism of a tree. Trees were seen as sacred in places of worship because they were uniquely shaped. Now, watch the symbology here. Watch how the ancient people would look at symbols. A tree has its roots down in the earth, so it goes down below, but it also has an existence in what you might call Middle Earth, and then it branches out into the heavens. And so it was a symbol of spiritual gateways, but also a symbol of humanity. And we see this in Scripture because we repeatedly see this comparison, if you study it, between human beings and trees. But they were also symbolic. There was the concept that there was a one great cosmic world tree that held everything together. And the serpent was also highly venerated in nature religions. And so among all the things that that story is telling us in Genesis chapter 3, one of the things, if you want to put it in its historical setting, the historical setting there is Israel is coming in with, now don't get triggered by this word. This is a scholarly term and I'm using it correctly. Don't get triggered by it what they call the Yahweh cult, meaning they were the group that worshipped Yahweh, right? And literally, from a political perspective, because remember it was kings that put together the scriptures to begin with, it is an attempt to overthrow nature religion by painting the tree, the serpent, and the woman not as that which sustained, but that which caused the fall. Make sense? The reason this is important is because Eve then, when Adam calls Eve, Adam calls her the mother of all living. And when he uses that term, particularly in the ancient culture, he's referring to her in that deific sort of She becomes a personification of nature. So we can look at Adam and Eve as archetypal images, the the archetypal man and the archetypal woman. We can see them as archetypes for ourselves. So when we eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that, that really we're meant to live in relationships and be able to be naked and fully open and transparent and not feel ashamed. But the moment we eat from a tree that has standards outside of ourself, we eat from that tree, we measure ourselves by that standard, we become ashamed. So what happens? We suppress our... Junk, which creates the shadow self. We hide from God. We hide from each other. We create fig leaves and aprons. We create a social self. I mean, you can pull all kinds of stuff out of there that's helpful for you today. And as long as you are building your life from a principle of what is wrong with you, you are eating at the wrong tree and it will continually produce death in your life. So anything you do, you know, you do inner healing, you do... Um, spiritual practices, you do, you go to counseling, whatever it is that you do, if you're doing it primarily from the belief that you're broken and you have to be fixed, you're already eating at the wrong tree. And while your efforts may bring you some relief, eventually it's going to produce death somewhere in your life. You see it? But you can also see Eve as the archetype, if you will, of nature itself. Because she's the mother of all living. Do you see it? And so we pick it up in Genesis 4 and it says, verse 1, Now Adam knew 
Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. So the idea here is that humanity is a byproduct of nature. All right. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. And so the Lord said, Cain, why are you angry and why does your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, watch this. Sin lies at the door. Now, I'm going to correct the translation here because it's wrong. In, in, in the version I'm reading, it says, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you and you should rule over it. But in the Hebrew, it's in the masculine tense. It says, and his desire is for you, but you should rule over him. Now Cain talked with his brother Abel and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know him, I'm my brother's keeper. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to the ground from me. So now you are cursed from the earth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you've driven me out of this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. And then it talks about how, uh, verse, let's just keep reading. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. He dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after his son, Enoch. And then he goes through all these people that were born. And if you go look at it carefully, out of Cain's line comes the arts, industry, and agriculture. So back to the progression, you have creation, you have God, you have order, you have the archetypal man and woman, you have the whole garden scene representing nature, you have Eve becoming, if you will, mother nature, does that make sense? She gives birth to a human being, showing us that humanity is a byproduct of nature, right? So these are phases that we go through in life, or phases or issues or powers or symbols, if you want, of things that affect our lives. There is nature, but ultimately there's also culture. There's man's contribution, there's man's building, there's man's imprint that transcends and goes beyond nature that we see coming from the line of Cain. It doesn't come from the line of Abel. And what's what's interesting is that later Eve has another son to replace Abel, and his name is Seth, but we see religion comes from Seth because it says when Seth was born, men started to call upon the name of the Lord. So anything productive, saints, comes from the line of Cain. So that Cain can represent for us in our lives Productivity. (laughs) Now, if you read the story carefully, it says, Adam knew 
Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. And watch this. And she bore again, this time his brother Abel. The language is really subtle here, but what he's telling us here is that Cain and Abel are twins. Now think about it. If she's the first woman, which in the story she is, she doesn't know she's carrying two. Doesn't say Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore Cain and Adam knew his wife again, which is the pattern in scripture. The pattern is always he knew her and she conceived, he knew her again and she conceived. So he knew her once and she conceived and then, oh wow, here comes number two. <laughs> which by the way, I have two twin sisters <laughs> that make up the, the rest of the other three if, if you didn't know that. So surprise, right? I mean, d- Double for your pleasure or double for your trouble, depends on how you look at it. <laughs> Sometimes it's a little bit of both, but do you, so Cain and Abel are twins. Cain's name means wealth. But he just say with me wealth. Abel's name, when it's translated, means vanity. Vanity. So just come along this path with me for a little bit. What if Cain and Abel, just like Adam and Eve, can represent parts of ourselves in many different ways when we look at it symbolically? Adam can represent the conscious mind. Eve can represent the subconscious mind. There's lots of different ways you can look at that. But what if Cain and Abel being twins represents two parts of ourselves. (laughs) What if we have a part of ourselves that was born into this earth that is a byproduct of Mother Nature in order to be productive, in order to produce something, in order to participate in culture, in order to build cities or be part of cities, in order to um, produce the arts, in order to be industrious, uh, that, that, that all the productivity comes from the Cain side of us because Cain is, is the earth-bound, earth-conscious side of us. But we have this other side of us that is more spiritual, which is why God accepts the offering from Abel, but not from Cain. Because we have this other part of us that's able to connect beyond, that, that isn't as concerned, watch this, that isn't as concerned about all the daily affairs and caught up in it, right? So on the one hand, you've got the person who devotes their entire life to building a kingdom in this world, and every thought that they have, that they ever think, is only about this life and how they can be productive and how they can gain wealth. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have the monk who renounces everything in the world and goes and lives in a monastery somewhere and just prays all day long. Right? You see it? So on the one side of the spectrum, you've got Cain. On the other side of the spectrum, you've got Abel and their brothers and their twins. And most of us are somewhere in the middle of that spectrum, right? But here's the interesting thing about Abel. Just like Cain, so Cain can be given, the Cain side of your nature can be given to murder, can be given to moving away from the face of God, moving east of Eden, if you will. But the Abel side of your nature, and this is why the name is so important, because it's really easy to just make a saint out of Abel and make a demon out of Cain. But the able side of your nature is also that dreamy, 
side that never gets anything productive done. It's the vanity side of you. Vain imaginations, daydreams, stories that we tell ourselves. Have you ever not liked a situation that you were in and told yourself a story that the situation wasn't really how it was, it's really like this? Okay, that's really hard for us to see about ourselves. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a friend? (laughs) You knew somebody at work, a neighbor, somebody out there that you think, my God, they've got their head in the clouds. My God, they're in such denial about that relationship or they're in such denial about what a great employee they are because they think they're the best and we can't stand them. You see it? That's able. (laughs) That's the able side of our nature. Or the person, how about the person who's always going to get rich doing something but they're never productive with what they're going to do. So they go from, they move from one scheme to the next scheme to the next scheme to the next scheme and nothing ever really comes of it. But they're always telling everybody how this next thing that they're on is going to be the thing that's finally going to cause them to arrive. And you know when you listen to them because you heard it so many times that the same pattern's going to, that it's just a pipe dream and they're not going to put the sweat equity into it to bring it to pass. They're not going to watch this, make the sacrifices that they have to make in order to produce, and so you know uh, it's just a pipe dream that they're chasing. What about all the other kind of vanities that we hold on to in our lives? What about our projections where we take our past unfinished business and project it onto the present and then regenerate it so that we get to live that cycle again? Well, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the camera. Oh, and by the way, when I said you, I was meaning you collective. So whoever my eyes were on, I wasn't even conscious of it. I've just learned after doing this for 20 some odd years to try to cover all my bases. Here's another interesting thing. God tells Cain, sin lies at your door. Now, the word sin there is personified. Uh, The actual language is, sin lies at your door like a crouching beast. But it is, it's not a, uh, in, in the gender, it's feminine. And it's hearkening back to Eve and the serpent and, right? So, the, Female beast, sin, lies at your door. But then the language changes and he says, his desire is for you and you should rule over him. Who's the him that he's talking about? He's talking about Abel. Because remember, God's dealing with this sibling rivalry. So there's subtle things in there to let you know that there was more going on. Like you don't just murder somebody after a first offense. Usually. Unless you're a psychopath. Then there doesn't even have to be an offense. But never mind. Not Hopefully not talking to psychopaths this morning. That's on a spectrum too. So <laughs> just saying. <clears throat> but can can you see where I'm going with this? 
So there's a sibling rivalry that's already going on that erupts over this offering issue. And God knows that Cain wants to kill his brother. And the word there for desire, by the way, is not, um, it's not a, oh, desire. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a twisted desire. It's, it's a desire to possess. It's a desire to manipulate. It's a desire to control. So his desire is towards you, but you should rule over him. In other words, sin lies at your door. In other words, what God's saying to him, I know you want to murder your brother right now. And I recognize that he is also part of the problem here. That his desire is for you. But instead of killing him, because you're the firstborn, again, you have to understand ancient cultures, the firstborn was always the one, the firstborn male in Jewish culture, in the context that this is being written and read, it was always the firstborn male was to rule over the rest of the house. So he's saying his desire is for you, but you shouldn't, you should relate to him as a brother, as a big brother, as, as a brother who's in charge, as one who takes the lead. Don't kill him. Take the lead with him. Now let's come back to the parts of ourselves. You have to understand that between this part of you that wants to be productive and this part of you that just wants vain dreaming, there's a conflict. And that part of you that wants vain dreaming, why do you tell yourselves? Why do we? Why do we tell ourselves stories that aren't true? Why do we paint pictures prettier than they actually are? Why can't we deal with reality? Because there's that vain side of us, that able inside of us that wants to say, no, this is how it is, and you're going to follow my lead in this instead of looking reality therapy or whatever. There's part of me that just wants to daydream about doing it because I don't want to put forth the sweat equity to actually do it. There's part of me that wants to imagine that it's good because I don't want to go to the effort that it's going to take to actually fix it. And so in one sense, watch this, I want to say this in one sense, in one sense you have to kill your able. In one sense you have to be willing to die to those stories. You have to be willing to die to those vanities. You have to be willing to take a stand and say, look, I came into this body for a reason. (laughs) I'm here right now for a reason. That's why I am not an advocate of anybody renouncing things and going off and joining a monastery because you, you, you can have all eternity. You know, the, even these, these mystical Christian groups that want to just ascend into the heavens and be with Jesus and see angels and do all that stuff all day long. You, you, I mean, it's so illogical because if you believe as a Christian that you're going to die and go to heaven, you've got all eternity to do that. You've only got one life because you don't believe in reincarnation. So this is it, man. This is your one shot to eat chocolate, to, to have Thanksgiving dinner to have sex whatever i mean this is it you got all eternity to you know holy 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 24 hours later oh my god what are they doing in hell this sounds so boring maybe they're having more fun down there let me let's go take a peek then gabriel taps you on the shoulder you're like oh yeah holy holy okay 
But I'm just saying you got all eternity to do that. You, you came here into this physical world to, to, to impact it, to affect it, to, to build a life, to have experiences, to learn things, to grow and to develop, to make mistakes, to make messes, to get messed up by life and figure out how you're going to sort that out. And being compassionate with yourself in the process and hopefully by being compassionate with yourself in the process, being patient with yourself in the process, you can also be compassionate and patient with other people when they're in the process. We don't all do it perfectly, but again, who cares? Perfect is boring. You know what I'm saying? So you came here to be a cane. And you brought with you a companion out of the womb of nature, an able, a dreamy mind. So on the one hand, you have to kill that dreamy mind so you can go off and build a city. But the problem is, look what God says. He says, if you kill him, because you killed him, now the ground isn't going to yield its strength. I love this part of the story. I, I, I just get chills when I think about it. What do you mean it will not yield its strength? It sounds like he's pretty productive. Cain went off and with his son they built a city together. And out of him came everything. Because just about any endeavor in life can fall under the, the, the category of the arts, agriculture, or industry. All of that came out of Cain. So God didn't say you won't be fruitful. God didn't say the earth won't work for you. That's why Cain's a tiller of the ground. Can you see it? Like he came in the body to be a tiller of the ground. To be productive in the earth. Same reason that you came. And he brought along with him an Abel. <laughs> and they were warring with each other. And he had this desire to go out and, and, and conquer. <laughs> go out and be productive. Go out and experience life. But he has Abel. Keep trying to rule over him with all this nonsense in his head. And dreaminess. And living on... Cloud nine and whatever, and worrying about what people are going to think about him, and making sure I'm keeping the image up so everybody thinks right about me, and all that stuff, right? And so finally he just gets fed up with it, and he kills it, and God says, because you killed him, now, now, watch this, the earth cannot yield its strength. So here's my point. Imagine what Cain could have done if he'd have heard the wisdom of God and checked sin that was lying at his door. And instead of going out in the field and murdering his brother, he went out in the field and won his brother and tamed his brother and ruled over his brother and brought him with him when he went to build a city. Brought him with him when he went to be productive. Then he could have had what he had, but also it could have had strength in what it produced for him. Because we have to have a side of us that is not afraid to dream. We have to have a side of us that doesn't... Yeah, come on. Thank you. We have to have a side of us that's not so caught up in the chaos and negativity of life that we can't be positive, even if we're putting a happy face on it. Even if we're telling ourselves a story that really isn't true just yet. Maybe this is a terrible situation, but we're able to tell ourselves a story that makes us feel better about the situation that inspires us, that gives us a spark to press through the difficult times and gives us hope so that we do not lose ourselves in the despair of the chaos of the life that perhaps we are living in the moment. That it's able that gives us the ability to connect with God. That it's able that gives us the ability to say, yes, it sucks what I'm going through right now, but all is not lost. There is a better day coming. I believe. 
I believe God has my back in that. I believe that I have some kind of divine support. I believe that there is a better day on the horizon. And I am going to take my possession, my wealth, my cane, and I'm going to invest it in the earth. I'm going to invest it in other people because I believe what I do in this life has some kind of eternal consequence and value. And so I'm going to take the two brothers and I'm going to have them properly aligned and I'm going to reconcile them within myself so that somehow they can begin to work together and I'm going to go out and build my city. And it may not be a big city and it may not impress the world and I may never get my face on television or my name in the newspaper and I certainly won't make the history books but it's still my city. It is still my contribution. It is still my purpose. It is still the reason that I showed up in this life and there is no level of discouragement or pain or rejection or fear that is going to so drive me that I become a vagabond in the earth and have no place to call my own. And it's only the lifeblood of Abel that gives us that strength. That somebody needs to be inspired with a new idea. Somebody needs to, somebody's in a, trying to improve my language, mom. (laughs) Can always tell when she's in church. She's gone on to. You might be working a crap job. And Cain, whose name also means possession, says, I need to hold on to this. And you need Abel to come alongside you and say, don't be afraid to get out of the crap job. Don't be afraid to let it go. Don't be afraid to go out into something else, even if it doesn't look as promising. And maybe finally to bring this all home, maybe the reason, maybe the reason that God accepted Abel's offering was because we don't have to kill our Abel, but we do have to sacrifice the vanity of our Abel and offer it to God so that Abel can learn his place in the family and realize I'm not the firstborn. I'm here to be a servant of Cain who's here to be productive in this life in the earth. And maybe by learning that lesson, because Cain's name also means wealth, there is wealth and abundance attached to that. So as long as you judge Cain, make him out to be the bad guy and the evil person, and you cannot find value in him or find value in the Cain that is in you, You'll never have the fullness that life has to give you. That's my offering this morning. I hope it blessed you in some way. God bless you. Namaste. Have a great day.